Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. You, but standing in the line at the grocery store is always a very enlightening experience, or I don't know what the word, I was trying to figure out a word, very um, lightning experience or interesting experience. <laughs> um, it becomes a place to people watch. How many of you like love to people watch? Raise your hand if you're like, yes, me. Um, it's a place to work on your patience, right? And discover the latest headlines, which seem to be exaggerating the truth. Um, tabloids and entertainment magazines, you always see those lining the pages of those aisles. We see those calling for you and me to purchase so that we'll be in the know. Buy this so that you'll miss out, not miss out on what's going on. It's not just on newspaper headlines in the grocery store. We just buy this so we know what's going on. You'll never miss out on the headline, the tabloids that always create the most outrageous rumors and false headlines always seem to entertain me. The front cover stories are just so absurd, I wonder how anyone could ever find them to be true. Here's a few examples. Elvis, you've heard this. Elvis is alive and pretending to be an Elvis impersonator. Okay, that's one. Secondly, a pack of wild cocker spaniels terrorizes Wyoming. They didn't get very many laughs. (laughs) Werewolves sunk the Titanic. Yeah. Okay. Women delivers her own baby while skydiving. Okay. Okay. That I don't know. Vegan empire attacks trees. <laughs> Vegan vampire attacks trees. I had to read that again. Okay. Housewife experiences half rapture. Um and then gets stuck in the dining room ceiling. <laughs> Okay, again, outrageous, right? Very outrageous headlines. In a world that seems to be so interested in grabbing our attention rather than standing on the truth, how do we know what is true and what isn't true? Like, how do we know this to be true anymore? This truth is stranger than it used to be. And in many ways, these headlines project our culture's view on truth. Don't let the truth get in the way of telling a story. There is just, let's just make a sale. Let's make a dollar off it. In the world's eyes, truth is very relative. Your truth is my truth kind of thing. There's no room for this postmodern world for absolute truth. No such thing as God-given truth. And whether we know it or not, whether we know it or not, some of us were swimming upstream. All of us are swimming upstream in this area. Believing and following absolute truth is seen as futile or intellectually inferior. We now believe what we believe, and it's up to everyone else to believe what they want to believe for themselves, what is truth, and it gets mixed, and everything else and everything seems to be in between all that. Yet what we find is that everyone does accept absolute truths in our society, like three plus three equals six, right? Three plus three equals six. In science, we accept the law of gravity. We accept traffic laws by stopping at red lights, or at least I hope we do, um, We accept traffic laws by stopping at red lights and go at green lights and slow on yellow. Unwritten social cues like rating in line are never questioned. Out of the many things we accept when it comes to religion or spirituality, 
or the like, we struggle to accept absolute statements in those areas, mainly because oftentimes they're a little too personal for our tastes, to be honest. And I'll be honest for a second, church. In an age of sound bites and social media posts and tweets, and one person posts one thing, and then that becomes truth, and then that becomes all of a sudden reality, and it's popular, therefore it must be true. Sometimes popular is not always the truth. And it can be very, it's just me swimming across upstream. It can feel like trying to swim. It comes some very fierce cultural winds that seem to be pressures and can feel so daunting with so many other voices and religions and truths out there and media. It can be kind of crazy to filter through some of this and all these other religions. It can be very difficult to weed. But we have a savior, a savior a risen Savior, a true and wise and all-knowing and powerful King who lives and reigns even now, who appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection, who fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, who reigns in your life even now and lives even now, who's alive and really present today in this church in Western PA. He can offer that life to you. John 14 says that, says that this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And it's a kind of statement, church, that kind of like makes you stop right in your tracks. It's like, oh man, stops dead in your tracks. A singular focus, a one-way kind of ordeal that really looks at Jesus as the only way to God. And he's going to go back to God. And he's from the Father. He said this over and over again. He's from God. He's going back to God the Father. And then there's this relationship all across the scriptures, especially in John, about God and God the Son and God the Father. And that Jesus is trying to explain to the crowds at this point that he is the Father. He's going to the Father and that he is the Son of God. And I think this will help us think through as to where this lands in the context of Jesus and his ministry. So we're going to talk about where this statement lands in the context of Jesus's ministry in John chapter 14. John 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all accounts about Jesus's life and they're all telling the same story. They're telling it in their own way and they're telling it to their particular audience. And Jesus, what's called in John 14, kind of a section of teaching that Jesus has, it's called the farewell discourse in 14 through 17 of John. This is kind of like the last sayings and teachings of Jesus that he wants everybody, his followers to know about himself before he's gone and then before he's crucified and before he's dead and he's raised and he goes back to God. So this is kind of an inside look as to who Jesus is um, and it's kind of know what he's about. Um, and this is uh, right, it comes this after Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. We celebrated that on Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into the city. Um, these are these last teachings and this is what Jesus wants us to know just before his life is taken. As one commentator says that they could be described, these chapters could be described as the last will and testament um, of Jesus Christ. That I mean to know that you're going to die for the sins of the world and it's telling for us to know what, what Jesus says, what Jesus says, but also what Jesus does leading up to the very last few weeks of his life. So he's demonstrating to us something very important about the heart of God the Father. And it's our heart. If you want to know what God is like, what is God like? Look at Jesus. If you ever want to know, like, well, I'm confused about God. Man, I don't know what God is like. Look at Jesus. And if we hope to know what God is like, we look at him. And in fact, Jesus wrapping up this statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, to know what he's about and how he's doing it. 
He's telling us this statement before he does some of the things that happens that lead up to this to show how to live into the truth, how to live into the life that Jesus wants for us. And there's great insight of this saying because of everything that happens. Now, here's kind of, kind of the, the backdrop between what happens to this. It's kind of the plot of what all happens before Jesus makes the statement, kind of telling as to Jesus being the way, truth, and life to show us what this looks like in his life. So here's what happens. Jesus meets Lazarus and then raises him from the dead. We talked about that last Sunday. If you were here, you'll have a pop quiz later. No, <laughs> nobody laughed. Um, Jesus meets Lazarus and he raises him from the dead. Um, backdrop to this, that there is increasing pressure as to who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, and there's religious leaders of the day plotting his death, okay? So then Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey in John 12. You can, this is all in your Bible, so you can, you can read this. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a donkey, Palm Sunday, as you will. We celebrated that. And then Jesus confirms it's time for him to be handed over. In John 13, Jesus takes the form of a servant. In those days, um, washes his disciples' feet. In fact, in those days, it was actually customary. Some of you today are like, I'm so glad that that has died out. I don't wash people's feet as soon as I enter into a dinner table. Um, you're like, amen. I'm glad that that does not happen anymore. My wife says amen to that, that she doesn't have to do that or anybody has to do that, that that's kind of cultural practice back in the day, washing disciples' feet. We find that in John 13. It's Jesus who washes everyone's feet that evening and including Judas at the table. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. And at that point, a guy named Peter, he's another apostle, disciple, and he begins to wonder. He's extremely zealous for Jesus, and he begins to wonder what's going on. And then Judas betrays Jesus, which is the ultimate act of betrayal, to have one of your closest friends betray you. Anyone ever felt that? Jesus did. A close friend betray you? Jesus felt the same way. One of his very closest followers and friends in John 13, 26, for 30 pieces of silver, which is not very much money. Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him three times at the end of John 13. And then in John 14, we get to this I am statement. Important in this, I think, to know kind of the trajectory of this statement. I'm the way, the truth, and the life is kind of know what is going on, kind of what the process and what the life of Christ looks like here. And all this is in a context. And I think Jesus is communicating something very deep to our church today about who he is, what he's doing, and what it means to follow Jesus. I think it's important in the life of the church. So here's what these seven statements have been. We've been walking through these. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. The I am statements, all of these recorded in scripture, reveal to us the deep-seatedness, the depths of the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus in the present tense. These are all in the present tense. I am. Jesus is a present reality, living and alive, and just because it's the week after Easter does not mean he's dead. He's alive. He's still alive. He's just as alive as he was last Sunday. Um, and it says in uh, Galatians 2.20 that the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are in John 14. It's on page, if you want to follow along in front of you, it's on page 763 of the Bible in front of you. Um, it's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. If you want to pay, I'm a uh, kind of a hardback person. I don't know if you are. I'm not a, necessarily a Kindle person. Um, but we at this church, we value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures 
And it's my prayer that you would find a church that does the same thing, preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. John 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. This is the, the, the headline there in my Bible says, Jesus comforts his disciples. And it says in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Anyone's hearts troubled? Because Jesus directly speaks to that right now, okay? So we'll kind of lean into this a little bit. Anyone's heart just troubled, you know, this morning? You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. They're struggling to know when Jesus is saying that he's going to the Father, he's leaving the world. They're really struggling with that reality. Many of them gave up their livelihoods uh, in their, many of their years to follow Jesus, and now they're just struggling with this reality. This is right before he's uh, taken to be crucified. So this is just a really intense kind of moment here. Um, and if I go in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas, thank you, Thomas, speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered this, I am the what? The way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. First, we stopped at verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is directly speaking to people with troubled hearts. I just love that. The word actually used, the troubled word in verse 21 uh, was, I'm sorry, the, um, verse 1 was actually used in verse 21 of the previous chapter of the word troubled. It means to describe the heart, the emotion of that word of Jesus as he went away. Um, the same word is used to describe the waters of the Sea of Galilee during a raging storm. And when those winds blew, the winds became choppy and churning, and the disciples are feeling like that. Their stomachs churning, their heads spinning, their emotions on overload. Jesus comforts their hearts. Jesus knows our hearts are troubled. Anyone have a troubled heart? Anyone have seas that need to be calmed? Anyone have a very strong, this is a very strong word here, and Jesus is very specifically saying to his disciples, it may look like your world is falling in, and all is lost, and darkness is going to engulf you, but don't let your heart be troubled. And in verse 1, we get the antidote to a troubled heart is believing in him. The antidote for a troubled heart is believing in Jesus. And in verse 1, we get that. And they were wondering where he was going. They felt inadequate about the work that lie ahead. Anyone feel like, man, I am too inadequate to do the work of God? I'm not qualified enough. But so did those very same disciples of Jesus. Even more, Jesus announced that one of them was going to be a traitor, and that was Judas at the table that they were sitting at. And when Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, you can be sure that those three statements are very significant. Jesus is saying that we place our trust in a person, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We place that in a person. You ever go somewhere, go somewhere and you follow the direction of the leader, that you don't know where you're necessarily going, but you follow the direction of the person going? Um, you're placing in the trust in the person that you're following that they're going to take you to the place that they want to go. Have you ever followed someone and they took you to the wrong place? 
raise your hand if you've took you to the wrong place. Okay, we're well, good. We've got some people who maybe took you to the wrong place. Thomas is the one speaking in John 14. Lord, we don't know where you're going, but how can we know the way? And sometimes in life, church, let's just be honest, there's sometimes in life where times where jumping off the ship is the path of least resistance. Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me. Jesus does not give any of us necessarily, he does not give us a timeline of specific, this is what your life will look like here, this is what's going to happen here, this is what will happen in three months from now, this is what will happen today after church, this is what will happen today, um, this evening when you go home, this is what, this is what, Jesus doesn't give us that, and because that's an element of trusting in him. Lord, how do we know where you're going? And he doesn't give us those visions of like, what are we, what's life? If you're troubled, it's like, well, I don't know what life looks like three years from now or 10 years from now. We don't have those things lined up. We trust in a person to show us the way by trusting in him on a daily basis. It's David Busick that says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. The way is sequentially first. This is not to say that the truth and life are not important. It simply means that the truth and life explain how and why Jesus is the way. Imagine with me, you're in an unfamiliar town, and you ask someone for directions in particular to a particular destination. A person you could have asked could say, you have, you have to veer to the right at the next big intersection, then cross the square, go past the church, stay in the middle lane, which will take you directly to the third street on the right until you come to a four-way stop. Anyone ever give directions like that or you go past the church or you go past a landmark, past a restaurant, you all know you've been there before, it's like go past the church, you're going to go three blocks and I'm like getting confused, I'm like three blocks north and then west and east and, um, and whatnot. You ever kind of been told those directions before? Sometimes even with clear guidance, when the way is complicated, the chances of making a wrong turn are very high. But instead, what if the someone you ask says, you know, there's no easy way to get to that point. Just follow me. Follow me to that point. Better yet, come with me and I'll take you there. Hop in my car, if you know the person, and I'll take you there. That person only becomes your guide, but they essentially become the way. And you cannot miss where you need to go. And that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't give us advice or directions but he walks with us in this journey of grace. He walks with us. He becomes the way. Notice with me across all of Jesus' teachings and his ministry, Jesus is displaying, he's displaying that he's the way. Not just simply belief, but belief and practice by living it out. Notice with me John 13, 1 through 2. It's just before the Passover, and Jesus knew the hour had come for, to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to what? He loved him to the end. Jesus went to Calvary. Yet in John 13, at the doorstep of the last week of his life, what we find is what has been called the chapters of being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus. And what we find is that when Jesus loves his own to the very end, that meant getting down on, on both of his knees and getting down and scrubbing the worn out and dirty feet of Judas, the very person that hated him. The very same man that would betray him. We as human beings, love people to a limit. We love people to a, to a limit. Jesus loves us to the end. 
He knows this is the beginning of the very end for him. It's Dane Ortland writes a book called Gentle and Lowly. I highly recommend the book if you have a few dollars. It's a great book, Gentle and Lowly. And he says this about this, that his ministry to this point, Jesus, talking about Jesus, has been tired and hungry. He's been misunderstood, mistreated by his friends, concerned by the religious and accused by the religious elite. But what is this all to now that what lay before him now? What is a shouted insult when you're on your way to the guillotine? For consider exactly what was impending for Jesus. Jesus has done all the Father's will unwaveringly, but throughout it all, he knew he had the pleasure and favor of his Father. It had been pronounced over him, and now the worst of his nightmare was about to wash over him. The horror of condemnation and darkness and death was, it was opening its jaws on him. Christ loved his own through the very end, even through death itself. So what does that mean for you? You're like, man, what does this mean for me? It means this, that your future is secure. If you're his, heaven and relief are coming. For you, you can't be made unhis. He made him, you his own, and you cannot squirm out of his grasp. And it means, secondly, that he will love you to the very end. Not only is your future secure on the basis of his death, your present is secure, proven in his heart. He will love you to the end because he cannot bear to do otherwise. No exit strategy, no prenup. He'll love you to the end, to the very end of their lives, to the very end of their temptations, to the very end of your fears, he will love you. And across all of the next four chapters of what this looks like, Jesus is going to spill out his love for his disciples, the people who do love him. It's like a discipleship track. And Jesus uses love 31 times across the next few chapters to show his very special love for those, for the church and for the world. And we find that in the middle of the dinner is when Jesus gets up and decides to do what a servant would do in those days. He gets up in the middle of dinner and he gets up and he washes his disciples' feet, which was a custom of that day traditionally. And he washes the feet of one another. Nobody wanted to do that. Yet Jesus is showing what he is all about and then what God is all about. When Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying what I've done is prepare the way toward eternal life and life itself, including washing another person's feet. And if we're to count ourselves followers of Jesus, it means that we must be people of the towel. We must serve people humbly in our lives. We have to be people of the towel. More specifically, we're to wash one another's feet. While Christ does not exclude the washing of the feet outside the church, it's also meant for the brothers and sisters in the church, for the body of Christ. And sometimes that's more difficult. <laughs> sometimes it's more difficult. It's sometimes it's easier to sometimes humble ourselves and wash the feet of people we don't know. But those in your own family, washing the feet of your, someone in your family who maybe is a Judas, Washing the feet of somebody in your life that's, boy, that's backstabbed you, that's wronged you, to somebody that you really know? What about fellow believers that we loathe? Or what about those who we haven't spoken to in years? But Jesus' instruction was clear. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And he says that in chapter 13. And when we do this, church, it will have a cleansing effect on other believers. Jesus is saying that the church has received this, the essential cleansing by him, the forgiveness of the sins, but we can help take the day-to-day -day dirt of other people, of the world, by humbly serving one another. 
and we will encourage each other in godliness. In verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus did not say we will, if you know these, Jesus did not say that we'll be happy if we think on those things. We'll be happy if we think on those things. Or as it's so often not, we'll be happy to, to just do those or have them done to us. Blessed are you if you do them. You ought to do this. It's an action of doing, not necessarily thinking about it, but doing it. Blessed are you who do them. Happy are we if we, blessed are we who wash the feet of our spouse, if that applies to us. Happy are we if we wash our children's feet. Happy are we if we wash our parents' feet. Happy are we if we wash the detractor's feet. We don't need to learn more about this. We need to do it. I need to do it. I'm not better than you. I need to do it too. We don't need to learn more about this. And spiritual foot washing is dirty work. We cannot make people clean by scolding them or lecturing them or patronizing them. We've got to get our hands dirty if we're going to be involved in the ministry of cleansing and the ministry of heart cleansing and the ministry of other people getting down and doing this work. Will we become people of the towel? So we've got to observe this. The marvelous, this foot washing scene of Jesus we have to have the quality of Jesus' heart in us. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We are to be overflowing with love. And then finally, we're to be people of the towel by recognizing who we are. The power and the grace lies within us, the disciples, the people that follow him. And our Lord saw himself as the king of kings, and he washed the disciples' feet. And you know that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people longing for God. And in verses 34 and 35, we get Jesus continuing this discipleship. He says, A new commandment I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so that you, you what? Must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you what? Love one another. Not necessarily, Lord, can I know them through social media? Or can I know them from a distance? Or can I love them from a distance? But a deep overflowing of heart that's committed to Jesus and following Jesus and being connected with Jesus is a heart that seeks washing feet and that's often dirty. Notice that none of the disciples resonate with this command. Like they don't respond, excuse me, they don't respond to this command. Jesus kind of leaves this out there for us to respond to it in chapter 13. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will, in verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And it's like bottoms dropped and it's like the rest, the challenge is us. The response is us. There is no response of the disciples. It's just leaving it up to the reader, leading, leaving it up to us. So what's changing you? What is changing you? Are you marked by the change that only Jesus can bring? or changing the, with the world around you? What marks your life and mine? You see, saying, but everyone else is doing it too, is a dangerous precedent. But everyone else is doing it. And before we, maybe we ought, sometimes we, as, sometimes as a church, we mark off teenagers by that. Don't we look toward that too sometimes? And parents, don't we, other, don't we look toward other parents and envy the wealth and good fortune and living that comes with that? Adults, do we not compare successes and failures 
Do we not look at our friend's well-to-do family with his high-paying job and can't help that notice that his life is like wrapped up in a Christmas bow and they've got it all together? Is truly being salt and light in this world simply watching the world waste away when Jesus calls us to very something so much greater and hard, but something so much greater, something so much better? Maybe God's calling you right now to get your hands dirty. Maybe it's a Judas in your life. You can't seem to stand even the thought of him or her. Maybe it's a Judas. And maybe you cannot seem to love. You're like, I can't love this person on a deeper level. I just can't. Maybe it's a person you've wronged, waiting on. Maybe you're like, man, I hope that person serves me first. Maybe you're like, man, I hope that they forgive me first. And you're like, I'm waiting for the first sign of forgiveness of that person. But maybe Jesus is saying here to step out. And I believe that the church, for us, the church, to that kind of devotion to Jesus is what God is calling us toward. It is, this was radical. This was a job that nobody wanted to do, and Jesus did that for all of his disciples. Who is it maybe even in the church? Maybe sometimes your closest friends, sometimes people that we know the most hurt us the most. Who's the person that may need the cleansing that only you can give? That only we can give? A devotion that says, man... I'm not going to throw the towel in on Union Township. I'm not going to throw in the towel, so to speak, on Newcastle. I'm not going to throw the towel in on that neighbor that continually does not, that just continually just, bah, man, we just butt heads all the time. I'm not going to throw in the towel on them. I'm not going to throw those people under the bus, or I'm not going to throw those who, who are deemed unworthy or unlovable. I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm not going to give up on them because Jesus sees them for who they are. And Jesus is saying, you and Washington Union are the light and salt of the earth. You are. And he's making a declaration about us, that we are that, that that is us. So where do we go from here as we kind of close this? The way, the truth, and the life are marked by a relationship with Jesus. Way, truth, and life. A dynamic of relationship, walking with Jesus on a daily basis. Sometimes, church, and I'm guilty too, we can feel like it's going through the motions on a daily basis. But God gives us grace to cover that. He gives us grace in our moments of need. It sometimes feels like we can walk through the Christian life and kind of go through the motions. But it also commits to Jesus in the hard parts. The way means the foot washing, even in the dark, or even when there aren't surefire answers, maybe in your life, we trust Jesus and his words. And oftentimes we kind of just like look at this book and we kind of just like glean from it. But like Jesus, I think, is calling us to a life that is, that is soaked and that is, that is in this book, that we are guided by this book, that we live in this, that we abide in this book, that we abide and we trust in his word. And we are to be people who long for it and who long for his word and long for that, who seek Jesus in it, who have it and internalize it. And sometimes we're like, man, I don't, I don't, maybe you're, maybe you're struggling because like, I don't know when, I don't know where to start, but, but Jesus will guide you through it. Um, and start with John. I would start with just the gospel of John from chapter one and John. Um, psalm one, as we close, is just a beautiful psalm. It gives us a guidepost as how we are to live this out. And Josh read this for us this morning, but this is how we're supposed to, this is kind of a guidepost of how to live this out. So when Jesus says he's the way, he says, 
Blessed is the one who doesn't walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way the sinners take or the company of mockers. Jesus is the truth, but those who delight is in the law of the Lord. Law of the Lord meaning those who delight in his word and who meditate on his law day and night, his word. Jesus is the life. That person, you can kind of picture this in your head, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. So instead, church, of grabbing headlines or listening to alternative theories that try and define truth, listen to Jesus in his word. Go to the scriptures. Let Jesus define this, define truth, and then we live it out. And it's there we find the life that we were all meant to live, and we were meant to live it out together. Will you pray as we sing this song, last song together? Before we, before we sing, will you pray with me?